Hello, I'm David King, and welcome to the United Methodist Ministry Academy podcast. This is episode two, The Basic Pattern of Worship. All right, so you're assigned as a pastoral leader in a United Methodist congregation, and one of the first and most public things you have to do is lead worship. So how is it exactly that United Methodists worship? And perhaps more importantly, why do Methodists worship the way that they do? That's what we're going to cover in this episode. The books that I'll be referencing are the United Methodist Book of Worship, the United Methodist Hymnal, and the Spanish-language resource Mil Voces para Celebrar. So how is it that United Methodists worship? Well, there have always been several different strands in the tradition. Methodism started as a renewal movement in the Church of England, and its founders, John and Charles Wesley, were both Anglican priests. Anglicans, like Lutherans and Catholics, have a liturgical worship tradition. That is to say, worship follows a particular order with particular prescribed prayers. A high percentage of the words used in the service are predetermined and assigned ahead of time, and on any given Sunday, they may be very much the same no matter which particular congregation you decide to attend. Many Methodist churches continue to be influenced by this liturgical practice. The Methodist movement started as a supplement to the regular worship of the Church of England, and Methodist meetings tended to focus more on singing, preaching, and exhortation. Also, many early Methodist preachers were not ordained, and so they weren't allowed to lead certain parts of the liturgy anyway. Methodism started as a movement in England, but it became a church in America. In the days during and after the American Revolution, Methodism grew and it continued to expand as the United States pushed its territorial frontiers westward. That church had an extreme shortage of trained, ordained clergy, and so lay people served as preachers and leaders. Frontier worship tended to be less liturgical, more centered on preaching, and more evangelical. The few clergy who were available would ride around on large circuits of churches on horseback, often visiting each congregation maybe only once a quarter. That meant that communion and baptisms could only happen that once a quarter when the clergy person was present. So from the very beginning, there have been quite a variety of worship practices in Methodism. As the church became larger and more diverse, new strands of worship practices developed. Worship in United Methodist churches today is often a blend of several of these different strands of worship styles, but that blend is negotiated differently in different contexts. Worship in Atlanta tends to be different than worship in New York, which is different than worship in Seattle, which is different than worship in Manila, which is different than worship in Nairobi. Worship may be quite different in a city than it is in a small town that's not too far away from that city. Worship may vary based on the average age of the congregation, its racial or ethnic makeup, its inclusion or exclusion of LGBTQ people, its theological leanings, its languages, and a number of other factors. 
All that is to say that if someone says, that's not how Methodists worship, or this is the way that Methodists worship, well, that's probably not right. Methodist worship has a very broad tradition. If you ask any particular question about worship, there are probably several different answers that all have grounding in the Methodist tradition. In my experience, congregations tend to think that however they do things in their local church is the way that all United Methodists do things. Don't let them get away with that. The Methodist worship tradition is much bigger than any one congregation can embody, and you can change an awful lot of things and still have worship that is very much Methodist. So, is there any rhyme or reason to Methodist worship at all? Yes, and the most simple guiding concept is called the basic pattern of worship. If you happen to have books at hand, you can find it outlined in the United Methodist hymnal at the beginning on page 2. There's also a fuller explanation of the basic pattern of worship in the Book of Worship, starting on page 13, and in Mil Voces para Celebrar, starting on page 2. The basic pattern of worship has four parts. It starts with... Number one, the entrance. Yay! Then there's... Number two, proclamation and response. After that, there's... Number three, thanksgiving and communion. And finally, there's... Number four, the sending. That's it. First, you gather people together in the entrance. Then you engage with scripture in the proclamation and response... Then you celebrate communion or offer other forms of thanksgiving. And finally, you send people out into the world. The Lutherans have this same basic pattern, but they word things a little more clearly, a little more directly. They simply have the gathering, the word, the meal, and the sending. If you're following that basic pattern, then you can make a plausible argument that you are doing United Methodist worship. So let's talk a little more about each of the four parts. First is... Number one, the entrance. Yay! We're bringing people together for worship. It's important to remember that this starts before the designated start time of the service. If your service is scheduled to start at 10, then your entrance might begin at 9.50, or whenever people begin entering your worship space. So what is happening while people are gathering? Often churches have some kind of musical prelude to try to help people focus their minds for worship. Is there some kind of visual element that helps people prepare for worship? Perhaps an image or a few words that people can begin meditating on. What is the expectation for people as they come into the worship space? Do they come in silently or do they come in talking and greeting each other? Because there's a theological argument for either way. If you come in silently, it's because you're trying to prepare your mind and your spirit for worship, to get yourself settled. And some people think that any time you enter the sanctuary, you should be in this more reflective mode, keenly aware that you are in the presence of God. 
On the other hand, if you enter the worship space talking and greeting, it's because you're celebrating bringing God's family together. It has the feel of a family reunion. We're checking in with each other. We're making people feel welcome in the space. If you have a congregation that disagrees about this, about what is happening during the gathering, well, both groups might feel like the other is being disrespectful. And you might need to have some conversation and education on what it is that you're doing when you gather together. All right, so you've got everyone or most everyone into the worship space. The minute hand is on the 12 and it is time to start. We're still in the entrance part of the service. What happens now? There's actually a lot of space for change and variation here. You could go to several different United Methodist churches and see it done in a number of different ways. There's probably going to be some kind of spoken greeting, a welcome to worship, whether that's given by the pastor or by a lay leader. It might be a formal set of words, or it might be more informal. It might give a little preview of what's going to happen later in the worship that day. It might include a special welcome for guests and visitors. Sometimes the announcements are given right here at the beginning of the service. Sometimes this opening greeting is just a quick call to worship. My advice, and it's only my advice, don't spend too long on the first part before you get to the singing or whatever is coming next. It's awfully rough on newcomers to have to sit through 10 or 15 minutes of announcements before it feels like the worship has actually started. Okay, so there's probably going to be a spoken greeting during the entrance. There's probably also going to be some congregational singing. Maybe it's just one song. Maybe it's three or five. Maybe the songs are related to your preaching topic for the day, or maybe they're just songs that offer praise to God. Maybe you don't even choose the songs ahead of time at all. You let people call out the songs that they want to sing on that Sunday. There are lots of options here, but it's really unusual to have Methodist worship without congregational singing, and singing is often the part of the service that people most remember. Okay, what else are you going to have in this first quarter of the worship service, the entrance? There could be some prayers. Sometimes there's a pre-written prayer that focuses on the themes of the day. Sometimes there's an extemporaneous prayer that the preacher makes up right at the time. Sometimes congregations will have an extended time of sharing joys and concerns, here followed by a prayer. And if you're going to have a prayer of confession along with forgiveness, this is one of the places where you could do that. This is also where you might have time for the passing of the peace. And I want to take just a brief aside about that. You don't always have to have a confession and pardon, and you don't always have to have a passing of the peace. But if you do, it's good if they go together. The idea is that as we're gathered together for worship, and before we take communion, we need to get ourselves right with God, and we need to get ourselves right with each other. So first, we confess our sins together, and then we all hear those words of God's grace and forgiveness for us. And then we reconcile things with each other. When we walk around and we're shaking hands and saying, the peace of Christ be with you, it's not just a way of saying, 
Hey, how's it going? It's a way of being reconciled. It's a way of saying anything that we might be arguing about right now. For this worship service, we're good. We don't have to agree, but we are sisters and brothers in Christ. We're family. The confession and the forgiveness and the peace go together, one after the other. If you're looking for formal prayers of confession and forgiveness, there are some in the back of the hymnal, starting at number 890. There are more in the Book of Worship, starting at number 474. You can also find some in the Model Orders of Service, starting on page 6 in the hymnal, page 16 in the Book of Worship, and page 8 in Mil Voces para Celebrar. All right, that's basically it for... Number one, the entrance. Yay! Lots of variety, lots of choice, lots of possibility. But whatever we're doing, we're preparing to encounter God. The next part of the service is... Number two, proclamation and response. And most of the time, this is the heart of the worship service. During the proclamation and response, we're going to hear the words of the Bible, and we're going to respond to them in some way. So let's walk through it. Sometimes there's a little introduction to the reading of Scripture. It could be a short song or a prayer. Some people use what's called the prayer for illumination, which begins with the words, Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. There doesn't have to be anything here, but often there is a little something to get folks centered and ready to hear the scripture. When it comes to the scripture itself, you will find anywhere between one and four different passages being read, depending on the context. If it's one scripture, it's probably the one that's being preached on. If it's two scriptures, there's usually one from the Hebrew Bible and one from the New Testament. More liturgical churches will read all four texts from the Revised Common Lectionary, The first is usually from the Hebrew Bible or the book of Acts. The second is a psalm or a song from somewhere else in scripture. The psalm is often read responsively with the congregation, or sometimes it's sung or chanted. There's a psalter in the back of the hymnal on page 736 with instructions and scripts for reading or singing the psalms. In Mil Voces para Celebrar, the psalter is found just before the hymns on page 88. The third scripture is usually from one of the New Testament epistles, and epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. Finally, the fourth reading is from the Gospels. Some congregations treat the Gospel reading with a special reverence, and the congregation will stand while it's being read. Sometimes there's a very short song that is sung right before the Gospel, or right after, or both. Again, there's quite a bit of variation from congregation to congregation, and most of them are probably going to think that the way that they do it is the proper Methodist way. After the scripture comes the sermon. Often this is where the choir anthem gets slotted in, but officially there isn't supposed to be anything between the reading of scripture and the sermon. They are considered to be one single unit. In fact, the sermon is considered to be part of the proclamation of the word, It's not a response to the word. 
In some congregations, the sermon is the unmistakable high point of the service. In others, not so much. Sermons range in length from 8 minutes to as many as 45 minutes. But about 15 minutes is what I tend to see in the congregations I've visited. But again, there's no hard and fast rule. Some preachers read their sermons from a manuscript, some preach from notes, others memorize their sermons, and still others trust in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some preachers preach from the pulpit, others like to walk around in the front of the church. I've seen a lot of folks who preach from a music stand, which always strikes me as just a little odd if there's already a pulpit there, because it seems like just a less good pulpit, but that's just me. So again, There's a wide range of different practices. After the proclamation of the word, there's the response to the word. This section can vary widely, even from week to week in the same congregation. There could be singing, an anthem, or special music. There could be a creed or affirmation of faith. Officially, the United Methodist Church is a non-creedal church. There isn't any specific creed that you have to agree to in order to be a part of the church. But there are several creeds in the back of the hymnal, starting at number 880, and in the front of Mil Voces para Celebrar, starting at page 68. If you're doing a baptism or a confirmation or a reception of new members, it's going to happen in this part of the service. If you're installing officers or blessing missionaries or blessing a new musical instrument, that'll happen here. If you're going to do an altar call, it's usually right here. There can be a pastoral prayer, either written out or extemporaneous. This is also one of the places where you could do joys and concerns. Often the Lord's Prayer is a part of the response, unless you're having communion later, and then it's often part of the communion liturgy. This is also where lots of congregations do the confession and forgiveness and the passing of the peace. Some congregations also have their announcements in this part of the service. And this is where the offering is supposed to go, usually as the very last thing in the response. Our gifts are supposed to be in response to the grace that we have heard in the proclamation of the word. And the offering also leads into communion, because we're offering not only our money and our time, but also the bread and the juice for God's special purposes. So that's the end of number two proclamation and response. It's usually the bulk of the service, and there's some logic to how it flows. First, we hear the word of God proclaimed, and then we respond in faith. But within that basic flow, there is a lot of room for creativity. On to the next part of the service. Number three, Thanksgiving and communion. We're going to talk about communion more in the next episode, but for now, just know that this is the point in the service that communion usually happens. However, most Methodist congregations don't have communion every week, even though the official position of the church is that we're supposed to. And if there isn't communion, then there is supposed to be some kind of thanksgiving, which usually amounts to not much more than a prayer at the end of the offertory. That's it. Kind of tiny to be an entire section of the service, but that is what we have. 
For that reason, sometimes I actually think of the four sections a little differently. I leave the first and the last sections the same, the entrance and the sending, but I draw the line in the middle of the service just a little differently. I think of the proclamation and the response as two separate sections, and the thanksgiving or the communion is part of the response. So it's number one, entrance, number two, proclamation, number three, response, including communion, and number four, sending. But again, that's not the official way that things are laid out. It's just a little trick that I do in my mind because it makes a little more sense to me. All right, we are about to wind up the service. We are at... Number four, the sending. It's time to send people out to live their faith in the world. There are usually going to be four things here. There's probably a congregational song of some kind. There's a blessing of some kind. There's something called a dismissal, where the people are encouraged to live out their faith in the world. And then there's a time when the people actually walk out, often with some kind of musical postlude. Even here, though, there can be some variety. In my experience, most congregations roll the blessing and the dismissal into one thing, and it's usually done by the pastor. Sometimes it's just one sentence long. It basically says, go out into the world and live your faith, and as you go, may the blessing of God go with you. It can be done right before the last song or right after the last song. However, in more liturgical churches, the blessing and the dismissal are two separate things. Usually the blessing comes before the final song, and it's usually led by the pastor. Then after the last song, there's the dismissal, the charge to go out into the world. And traditionally, this part is the responsibility of the deacon. So if you have a deacon in your congregation, ideally they would be the one doing the dismissal, the call to faithfulness in the world. Some congregations put the announcements here as a way of connecting worship with the rest of the church's mission. However you do it, though, you send the people on their way. So we said that the worship service actually starts before the advertised start time. It starts when people are gathering, often during a musical prelude. Well, the end of the service is similar. The worship doesn't end until at least the end of the musical postlude. And it's very common for clergy or worship leaders to shake hands and greet people as they're leaving the worship space. All right, that was a lot to get through, but we made it. Four parts of the basic pattern of worship in... Number one, the entrance, yay! The people gather and prepare for worship. And then in... Number two, proclamation and response. We hear the scriptures proclaimed and we respond in faith. Next, in number three, Thanksgiving and communion. We give thanks to God, and sometimes we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Finally, in number four, the sending, we share a blessing, and we are sent out to live our faith in the world. One, two, three, four. But there's a lot of room in that structure for variation. However, if you don't really want variation, you can also find a pre-made order of service, ready to go, right at the front of the hymnal. If your projector is broken, or if someone forgot to print the bulletins this week, 
you could just have everyone turn to page 6 at the front of the hymnal, or page 8 in Mil Voces para Celebrar, and you could lead them right through the worship from there. You can also find the same thing, but with more explanation, at the beginning of the Book of Worship. And of course, you can find other orders of worship for special occasions in these books or in other online or print resources. But I think that that is probably plenty for today. So that's it for this episode of the United Methodist Ministry Academy podcast. Please let me know how I can make it more relevant for you. You can email me at umministryacademy at gmail.com. There's also a place in the show notes where you can leave a voice message with your feedback or questions. Special thanks this week to Kyla King and Kayla King for helping us count out the basic pattern. Next time, we will talk about communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, how do Methodists celebrate it, and why. Thank you for listening. Thank you for answering God's call in your life. Thank you for coming to the Columbia District, and keep up the good work.